All right, on to Daniel, and we begin with an overview of the book so we can kind of get the lay of the land and get an idea of where we're headed in the days ahead. Daniel is comprised of 12 captivating chapters that are divided into two equal parts. The first six chapters are dedicated to telling six stirring stories about four Jewish exiles named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as they're called in my favorite Veggie Tales episode, Daniel, Rack, Shack, and Benny. That's an easy way to remember it, all right? Daniel, Rack, Shack, and, and Benny. Uh, however we call them, or whatever we call them though, chapters one through six relate incredible stories of how these four men stand for God in the midst of a hostile and toxic culture. The second six chapters then include uh, four mind-boggling visions that Daniel receives, visions which foretell events that are going to happen a long time in the future, even up to the end times. This means that Daniel is both historical and apocalyptic, making it, as we're going to see over the next 12 weeks, one of the most interesting books in the Bible. However, we're not only going to find this book interesting, but more importantly, we're going to find it powerful. We're going to find it powerful, not because of the enthralling stories or fascinating prophecies, but rather because of its twin themes. And I want to lay out these twin themes for you right here at the beginning. We're going to go over them again and again in the weeks ahead, but it's important that, that even as we get here into chapter one, we kind of understand what this book is about. So here are the twin themes. Theme number one is that God is sovereign and is working to bring about his full and final victory. The second theme then is that because this is the case, because God's in control and is working towards his full and final victory, his people can thrive in the midst of challenging circumstances. Now we've entitled this series Stand because that's what we as God's people have to do if we're going to thrive in the midst of challenging circumstances. So if you're gonna thrive, brothers and sisters, you have to stand on this truth. You have to stand on the truth that God's in control and that he is working in all of this to bring about his full and final victory. You know, I think most of us were probably hoping that as the calendar turned to 2021, things were gonna get better, right? Things were gonna, you know, we hit the new year, things are gonna go a whole lot differently, it's gonna be a whole lot better, and it took about six days for that dream to be crushed, right? But here's the thing that we, we've got to remember, and I'm going to say this over and over, not only today, but in the weeks ahead. Nothing that has happened over the last year has caught God by surprise. God didn't wake up on Tuesday morning and say, oh my goodness, I didn't see this coming. He knew it was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen before he created the world. And what we're going to see from Daniel is that he's completely sovereign over all the political affairs that happen in this world. And what's more, he's using them to bring about his full and final victory. And that as we, therefore, stand on this truth, we can thrive no matter what circumstances we face in life. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the first seven verses of Daniel as they provide us with an important introduction to the book. We're told this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. That means they were to serve the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. These events describe, um, or verses, describe events that occurred in 605 B.C., the Babylonians are the world power uh, at this time, and as they expand their rule westward, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, sends his troops, he sends his army to besiege Jerusalem. And it takes a while, but, but eventually King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, surrenders, and when he does, Nebuchadnezzar's troops enter the city, they ransack the temple, they annihilate a bunch of the people, and then they cart off some of the best and the brightest young men back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar exiles these young men because they're the future leaders of Judah, and he believes that the best way to subjugate a people over the long term is through cultural assimilation, through changing how his subjects think, how they believe, and how they act. And with these four young men, uh, he uses a three-pronged attack. First, he assigns them uh, to three years of education or really indoctrination in what we might call Babylonian university. Second, he provides them with a comfortable living so they'll come to depend upon him and enjoy life, really enjoy life in Babylon. Third, he changes their names and hope that they will begin to worship his gods. The names Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all reference the God of Israel, whereas the names Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all invoke the help of Babylonian gods. So there are a couple things that we can't miss in all of this. One is that these young men are severely, severely traumatized. The term youth means that they were probably between the ages of 12 and 15. So they're sixth to 10th graders, and they've just watched their city be destroyed, probably friends and family murdered. Then they've been carted at least a thousand miles away from home. Worst of all, probably, is the fact that you will note they've been put in charge or under the charge of the chief of eunuchs, which means that, yes, they have been made eunuchs. These men have been severely traumatized. The second thing we can't miss is that Nebuchadnezzar, who is the most powerful man in the world. In fact, he's the most powerful man in the world up to this point, has them under his thumb, and he's doing everything he can to really squeeze them into his mold. He's doing everything he can to really to cause them, really to force them to abandon their culture, their way of life, and most importantly, their God. 
As a big part of this, they're offered the possibility of a very comfortable and prestigious life if they'll simply kind of go uh, with the flow, if they'll allow themselves to be assimilated into Babylonian culture, if they'll worship the Babylonian gods, if they'll begin to act and think and believe like the Babylonians, it's gonna be really easy. It's gonna be really, really good for them. So I just want you to imagine the tremendous stress on these young men. As teenagers and young ones as that, they have a life-defining decision that they have to make. As they find themselves in Babylon, they have to decide if they're going to give up, if they're going to give in, or if they're going to stand up. And let me tell you, there's a whole lot of tension. You, you may not be able to see it, but it's there as we come to the end of verse 7. If you've never read on, you may, you may not be thinking about this right now, but as we come to the end of verse seven, there's a whole lot of tension as to whether or not these young men are gonna just give up or are they gonna give in or are they gonna stand up? And let's look at what they do. Verse eight says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the user of your own age? So you would endanger my head with a king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So did Daniel and his friends give up? No. Did Daniel and his friends give in? No. Did Daniel and his friends stand up? Yes. They stand up and they remain faithful to their God. When it's all on the line, when their lives are at risk, they stand up, they take a stand for their God. Now, let me explain a little bit more about what's going on here, though. You will note that when they are put into Babylonian university, they actually don't argue, they don't fight, they don't push back. And when their names are changed, they don't object to that at all, seemingly don't say anything about it whatsoever. However, when they're told you're going to need to eat this, you're gonna eat the king's wine and you're, or eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, you're, they, they object. They say, this is the place where we are gonna take a stand. This is what, we're, we're just not going to go there. Now, why is that the case? Well, it actually doesn't have to do with the food. The food actually wouldn't have defiled them. We're actually gonna see Daniel eating the king's food and drinking the, the king's wine later on. So, so what it has to do is that what they're saying is, we're not gonna depend upon King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to show at this place, this is where we're gonna draw the line, and we're going to show not only to uh, the Babylonians, but also to ourselves and to our God that we are not gonna depend on Nebuchadnezzar, we're gonna depend upon him. That we are going to look to him, not to some foreign pagan king for our comfort, for our sustenance, for our future. So here's what we need to talk about today. 
we really need to talk about is we need to talk about what enables these four young men to take this stand. And we need to talk about that because this is something that we are all going to have to do. In fact, it's something that we all have to do and we have to do it right now. We all have to decide if we are going to take a stand for our God. We all have to decide if we are gonna remain faithful to him. Let me just tell you this. This is going to be the case more and more in the days ahead in our country. One of the reasons that we are taking a look at Daniel is because if you can't see the writing on the wall, and by the way, there, there's writing on the wall in Daniel, but literally, okay, if you, if you can't see the writing on the wall, you need to see it today. It's coming very, very quickly where it is not going to be comfortable to be a Christian any longer in our nation. Y'all with me here? For the entire history of our country, it's been really comfortable, and if I can say it, really, really easy to be a Christian, or at least to call yourself a Christian in the United States. That day is coming to an end. That day is coming to an end. And so we're all going to have to wrestle with more and more whether or not we're going to stand up and we're going to remain faithful to our God. And as we're going to see here in just a moment, I'm already getting on to my first point, now is the time to decide, not when that day comes. It's coming, but now is the day to decide, not on that day. So let's talk then about what enables Daniel and his friends to take a stand. And I'm just going to say Daniel for the rest of this message because it would be really, get really old to say all four of those names every time. All right. So when I talk about Daniel, I'm talking about all four of them and it applies to all of them. I'm just going to say Daniel. So here are three things that enable Daniel to stand. One, he predecides to stand. He predecides to stand. Verse eight says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with Nebuchadnezzar's food or wine. This means that he doesn't wait until the food and the wine is put in front of him to make his decision. He makes his decision in advance. In effect, he draws a line ahead of time and says, no matter what, I'm going to take a stand here. You see, the time to decide if you're gonna take a stand is before you actually have to. For example, the time to decide if you're going to be sexually pure is before the temptation comes, not when it comes. Did you hear that? The time to take a stand on whether or not you're going to be sexually pure is not in the moment when the temptation comes. Because if you wait until the moment the temptation comes, you know what you're going to find out? When those hormones are raging, right, and your flesh is really, really weak, you're going to find you're probably not going to be sexually pure. The time to decide whether or not you're going to be sexually pure isn't when you're alone when your boyfriend or girlfriend, it's before you start dating them. Or the time to decide whether or not you're gonna be faithful to your spouse isn't when your coworker starts flirting with you, it's when you make your marriage vows. Now I could go on and on here, right? There's all kinds of examples. The time to decide whether or not you're gonna be a person of integrity isn't when the temptation comes to not tell the truth or to fudge the truth. The time to decide whether or not you're going to be a person who is going to gossip or not is not when the people after the church service, yes, this happens after the church service, start gossiping. It's before that happens. So you can say, when that happens, I'm either gonna walk away or I'm gonna speak the truth. And there's all kinds of examples and we will all face them this week. Now, the place where I have to take a stand and where you have to take a stand is probably different. In other words, the place where I need to be resolved and you need to be resolved are different, but make no doubt about it, 
we all need to make resolutions that we're going to stand and that we're gonna do so ahead of time. If I can say this, please don't do what I've done so often in my life. Way too often, I've not taken a stand because I've not predecided about an issue. To my deep regret, I found myself compromising time and time again because I've waited until I was in the moment. And honestly, I'm not strong enough to wait until I'm in the moment. It's probably also true for you. And so wherever you need to today, resolve to stand in whatever areas you need to. The second thing that enables Daniel to stand is his knowledge of God's word. Now, this is easy to miss, but in verse four, we're told that before he was taken captive, Daniel had wisdom, knowledge, and learning. As a Jewish young man, this would have been wisdom, knowledge, and learning in the Old Testament scriptures, at least the part that had been written to that point. So Daniel knew his Bible really, really well, and that would have included two passages from Isaiah that spoke directly to his situation. Now, you have to stick with me here, but I promise you that if you do, it'll be really, really helpful to you. Isaiah 39. I'm starting Isaiah 39. In Isaiah 39, uh, we're told that King Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah, um, he was actually King Jehoiakim's great-great-grandfather. So King Jehoiakim is the, the king here. King Hezekiah was his great-great-grandfather. And we're told that at that time, uh, the people of Judah were being threatened by an invasion from the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the major world power, but the Babylonians were beginning to gain power. And so what Hezekiah does is he makes a political alliance with Babylon. Now, what's interesting, actually what's sad, is that God had just miraculously rescued Hezekiah and Judah from the Assyrians. But when they come back, what does Hezekiah do? Does he run to God? Does he trust in them? No, he runs to the Babylonians. In fact, he doesn't trust in God at all. He says, the Babylonians will save me. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah to tell him that since you have aligned yourself with Babylon, there's coming a day where your sons will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Side note here, by the way, Isaiah 39 would be really, really good for us to study in these days because it shows us the folly and the danger of trusting in a politician to save us rather than God. And if you think I'm saying what I am saying, I am saying that. That's what this week has taught us. And the word warns us of it. Let's learn our lesson. Now, with that said, more importantly, so, so maybe I'll go back to, to Daniel. Daniel knew that he was actually living out the prophecy of Isaiah 39. He, he knew that he was one of those eunuchs that God prophesied would be in the palace of the king of Babylon. More importantly, though, not only would Daniel have known Isaiah 39, but he also would have known Isaiah 43, where God tells the people of Judah this, but now, but now, thus says the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. 
What I'm trying to show you here is that Daniel knew how he ended up as a eunuch in Babylon, but he also knew that no matter how much difficulty he endured there, God was going to carry him through and redeem him. Maybe it would be helpful for me to put it this way. Daniel's knowledge of God's word told him to expect trials, but at the same time, it also assured him that God was going to be with him, protect him, and save him in those trials. Brothers and sisters, here's what we have to get today. We have to get, we have to realize that the Bible tells us the same thing over and over again. The Bible tells us repeatedly that we should expect trials, that life is going to be difficult, that it's going to be hard, that it's going to be painful, that as a result of sin, that as a result of the fall, this life is going to be hard, but... But in the midst of that, God is going to be with us. He is going to protect us. He's going to carry us through. And he's going to give us the full and final victory. That's the testimony of scripture from beginning to end. Let me just give you one example. John 16, 33. Jesus says this. In this world, you will have trouble. You know, one of the reasons why we're struggling right so much, uh, why we're struggling so much right now is because we don't pay attention to Jesus. He told us it was gonna be hard. He told us it was gonna be difficult. But notice what he also says. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you know what the word overcome means? It means I have won the victory. I have won the victory. It's gonna be hard. It's going to be difficult. But it's okay. Because Jesus has won the victory. And because Jesus won the victory, all those who are in him, who are his, Guess what? They have the victory too. So what I'm telling you is we should expect trouble. But we should also trust that God's going to be with us in that trouble and ultimately give us the victory over the trouble. We can be assured that Jesus is with us in our trouble and that he's going to have victory over it. By the way, here's something that I've learned and I'm learning more and more in my life is that it's in the trouble, it's in the difficulty, it's in the pain where, where God meets me, or maybe I should say where I meet him. It's not so much when things are going well, things are comfortable, things are going the way that I want them to, that I see God at work. Now, now he is at work, but when things are going really, really well, I don't really think that I need him all that much, right? It's when things begin to come crashing down on me that I turn to him and then all of a sudden I can see and experience his work and his love and his grace and his mercy. And so, so here's what I'm gonna tell you. If trouble and pain and difficulty come your way, you know what you need to do? Embrace it. Embrace it. In some ways, and this is what Paul would say, bring it on. Why? Because his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in our weakness. Did, did you know this? God's power isn't made perfect in our life when we're strong or when we think we're strong, maybe I should just put it that way. God's power is made perfect in our life when we're weak, when we're destitute, when we're broken. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So embrace the difficulty, embrace the struggle. But but does that mean we, we say, it's great, it's wonderful, hallelujah? No, no, right? You with me, right? You know, Romans 8, right? We all know Romans 8, right? All things work together for good. That doesn't mean all things are good. (laughs) Because there are a lot of things that aren't good. 
but all things work together for good for those who love God, who those are called according to his purpose. All right, enough on that. But let me just add this. This is why knowing your Bible is so important. Because it's the Bible that produces the faith that we need to stand and trust God no matter what we face in life. The third thing that enables David to stand or Daniel to stand is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Now we can see this in our text in three ways. All right, we see God's faithfulness to Daniel in three ways. First, verse nine tells us that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel's able to stand, in other words, because God goes ahead of him and provides what he needs to do so. Here's one of the the great things that, that Daniel teaches us. It teaches us that when we decide to take a stand, we'll actually see as we are standing that God has already gone ahead of us and laid the groundwork to provide what we need in order to stand. Can you see that? Daniel decides that he's going to stand. And guess what God has been doing? He's been working on this chief of eunuch on his heart so that when Daniel asks, makes this request, the chief of the eunuchs is going to be favorable and show him compassion so that he's able to stand as he is committed to stand. Second, God uses a vegetarian diet to make Daniel fat. You've never heard this point in a sermon before, but it's in the text. I promise you, let me show you. God shows his faithfulness by using a vegetarian diet to make Daniel fat. Verse 15 says this. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Let me explain this. The ideal wise men men in those days were bald, big-eyed, and chubby. Bald, big-eyed and chubby. So we probably don't think of Daniel in this way, but he looked a lot more like Jim Gaffigan than, say, Jason Momoa, all right? Or maybe, to contextualize this, he looked a lot more like Chris Carr than Matt Mitchell, all right? (laughs) So normally Matt is sitting over here. I think he's back over here, yeah. So you're all like, yeah, that's true. Um... But, but in all seriousness, all right, what, what Nebuchadnezzar was looking for here wasn't somebody, uh, wasn't a physical specimen, at least as, as we would think of it. What Nan, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was looking for, he was looking for guys who were chubby. And, and therefore, the best way to get chubby was to eat the rich food and to drink the wine that he provided. However, Daniel refused this food and instead subsisted on vegetables and water and he still ended up fatter than the guys who were eating pasta and drinking a six-pack every night. There's a quick side note here. Several years ago, a prominent pastor came out with a book about promoting the Daniel diet. But it seems to me that this is about the absolute worst diet you can follow. I mean, you're gonna eat vegetables and drink water and you're still gonna get fat? I mean, if, if I'm, you know, you know what I'm talking about here? I mean, if, I, if I'm going to get fat, I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> Some of you are thinking you are enjoying it apparently, but I wore the black sweater today to be slimming. Um, anyway, the point, the point is this, that God was faithful 
and supernaturally caused Daniel to look better than all those who ate Nebuchadnezzar's food. There's only one way that Daniel was actually going to look better than these other guys. And that was if God made him look better. You don't get fat as a 12-year-old by eating vegetables and drinking water. You only get fat if God makes you fat, and that's what happens here. Daniel trusts God. Once again, God faithfully comes by and provides what he needs to stand. Third, not only did God cause Daniel to look better, but he also caused him to perform better. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood, that means they served the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now we have to understand that David's found, or Daniel's found to be superior and far superior to the rest of the wise men, not because he was smarter or because he worked harder or because he had a certain favor with Nebuchadnezzar. He was found to be far superior because God gave. That's a key word. God gave him superiority. In fact, the word gave is the key word in chapter one. It's repeated three times. Once in verse two, where we're told that God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. One in verse nine, where we're told God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then finally here in verse 17, where it says that God gave Daniel learning and skill and understanding. So, so listen very closely here. Chapter one is not about Daniel's faith, but rather about God's faithfulness. The hero of chapter one and the rest of the book isn't Daniel, it's God. God is the one who provides Daniel and his friends with what they need to stand for him, to stand up to the Babylonians and also to stand out amongst the Babylonians. And guess what? Daniel is going to do this for a very long time. Verse 21 says that Daniel was there. That means he stood in the service of the king until the first year of King Cyrus. We're gonna see later in the book that the first year of King Cyrus is 539 BC, which is at least 66 years later than chapter one. For nearly 70 years, God will faithfully cause Daniel to stand in the palace of the king of the Babylonians. And during that time, he will speak to them about the Lord. And he will be a great representative, a great testimony as he faithfully stands for his God. Here's the clear implication of all of this. The clear implication is that God's faithfulness is enough to keep us standing for him no matter what life may throw at us. To quote one pastor, when the world does its worst, God's faithfulness is enough. In other words, the point of, of chapter one is that, that we can stand in God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is what enables us to stand. Now, let me tell you why this is really, really good news for us. 
It's really good news for us is because there aren't too many Daniels here today. Do you know what I'm talking about? There aren't too many of us who are actually Daniels. In fact, most of us have compromised this very week. Many of us have refused to stand where we should have stood. Many of us have gone along with the flow. Many of us have not been faithful to our God. In fact, at least in in some ways, we've all been unfaithful this very week. You know what I'm talking about? I know that I have been. In fact, there was an incident this week where I had the opportunity to stand up, to speak the truth to someone, to share something that they need to hear, and I refused to do so. I shrunk back, and I wasn't faithful. I didn't stand like Daniel. Growing up, I was taught a song called Dare to Be a Daniel. Some of you have heard it before. I'm not gonna sing it, but I'll tell you the words. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Kind of a catchy tune, really, really nice words, really, really good words. The problem is, is while we might dare to be a Daniel, uh, we can't, at least not on our own. We fail to be a Daniel. And that's why chapter one is such good news is because it's not about us being like Daniel, but rather it's about us looking to God's faithfulness and in God's faithfulness, finding the power and the strength that we need to stand for him. So let me put it this way. Maybe this will come home to you better. The gospel is not about God being faithful to those who are faithful. In other words, the gospel isn't that if we are faithful, then God will be faithful to us. The gospel is, is that God has been faithful when we have been unfaithful. That God sent his son to this earth, not for the faithful, but for the unfaithful. God sent his son to come and to live the perfect life that we can't live and that we don't live so that through faith in him, God can consider us, he can count us, he can look at us as faithful. So here's the wonderful news I can tell you today, that if you have been unfaithful, it's okay. And it's okay, because if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus, then based upon what Jesus did, not upon what you have done, God looks at you today and says, you are faithful. In other words, God looks at us and he doesn't see our unfaithfulness. He doesn't see the fact that we have failed to stand. He doesn't see the fact that we have compromised. He doesn't see the fact that we have lied. He doesn't see the fact that we have been sexually immoral. He doesn't see the fact that we have messed up time and time again. What he sees is he sees Jesus. And so in response, he says to, to us, well done, my good and faithful steward. Or this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. So please don't, it, it's so easy. And, and some of you have been taught this because of the church background that you come from, you've been taught that if you are faithful, if you're good, if you do enough things, if you follow enough rules, then God will be happy with you. God will be pleased with you. My friends, that is not the gospel. That is not what the word teaches. So some of you really struggle with this even to this day. Here's how I know it, because I hear from you all the time. I hear from you all the time. And I understand that because that's what I grew up in too. But the gospel is not be good, do good, try hard, and you will earn God's favor. The gospel is, is that Jesus came to this earth and lived the perfect life you don't live and can't live. And now through faith in him, God looks at you and says, you're perfect. 
You're faithful. Even though, here's the thing. I have lived an unfaithful life. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that. I've lived an unfaithful life. But the truth is, is that today God looks at me and says, Chris Carr is faithful. Not because of what I have done, not because I'm up here preaching, not because I'm a pastor, but rather because at six years of age, I repented of my sins and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, my standing before God is perfect, faithful, love, accepted, regardless of what I do from that point on until the day that I die. Are you with me here? It's not, I'm not telling you to stand and then God will accept you. I'm telling you, God accepts you, now stand. And it makes all the difference in the world. I hope you're getting this. I hope you'll let this pierce through your heart and your mind. Listen, does God want us to stand like Daniel? Absolutely. Does he want us to be Daniels? Absolutely. But we don't have to be a Daniel so that God will accept us. He already does. In fact, let me put it this way. Did you realize that God could not possibly love you any more than he loves you right at this moment? As one pastor says, God does not love a future version of you. He loves who you are right now. And he loves you perfectly. He loves you more than, than, than you can possibly even imagine. And he loves you in that way because when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, we become connected to Jesus. We become, as the New Testament says over and over again, in Jesus. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our failure. He doesn't see how much we have messed up. He sees what Jesus did. Now, what did Jesus do? By the way, the reason I'm, I'm going into this and in this is because we really have to, this is the key to the entirety of the Christian life. So, so when, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He came and lived the perfect life that we don't live. He was completely faithful every single second of his life. Not one time was he unfaithful to God. And then at the end of his life, they nailed him to a cross where on that cross, yes, he died, uh, he suffered physically, but the bigger issue on the cross is the fact that on the cross, God carried out his wrath against all of our unfaithfulness on his son. All of the, the, the penalty, all the punishment, all the wrath that, that we deserve, Jesus took on that cross. So the moment that we place our faith in Jesus, we get, first of all, all of our sins, all of our unfaithfulness paid for. It's gone. It, it's in the, the trash bin, never to be brought up against us again. And, and we also get all of Jesus' perfect faithfulness. So that right now and forever, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your standing is as a perfectly faithful man or a woman. And it will always be the case. And then, as we get that and as we understand that, what do we do? We go out in appreciation and in love for what he has done. We go out and stand for him. Realizing that even when we don't, it's okay because we're still forgiven. Now, Here's what I'm not telling you, because some of you will take this the wrong way. I'm not telling you to go out and just do whatever you want to do this week. Like it doesn't matter. And here's the thing. If you really understand what God has done for you, you're not going to go do that. If you're going out and saying it doesn't matter how I live, then you really don't understand what Jesus has done for you. Because when you understand what Jesus has done for you, and that's what Daniel did. Now, Daniel didn't know 
all the details that we know about Jesus, but he knew that God had promised the Jesus because he had the book of Isaiah. And there's no book in the Old Testament. I'm, I know I'm going on and on, but you gotta get this, all right? There's no book in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus more clearly and specifically than Isaiah. And Daniel understood that Jesus was coming. And because he understood that Jesus was coming, he stood. We look back and we saw that Jesus came. And he came so that we might be faithful. And so what do we do now? We go out and we live in faithfulness. We stand for our God. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?